on. I'm on three seats. <laughs> Look, there goes the game. You're listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Michael Memes, and thanks for joining us. Tonight, we hear about local politicians' response to Cuomo's allegations. Assemblywoman Anna Kellis recently called on the governor to resign. Hear testimony from IC faculty facing getting cut from the school. Most of the faculty that helped me develop it and would work with me in launching it have lost their jobs under the APP process. And how to deal with the stress of the continued pandemic from local experts. You can get so fatigued by the scope of what you're working with every day. But up first, let's hear what's going on in the Ithaca area with our community beat. Green Street Garage is set to close starting on March 29th. Starting the 22nd, traffic lanes will be shifted 4 feet to the south and 10 inches wide. This is in anticipation for renovation and demolition, with the hope that the road reopens late fall of 2021. The city center mixed-use project in downtown Ithaca was sold last Thursday for $75 million, according to the county clerk's office. The $52 million costing project was opened by the Newman Development Group of Westville in 2019. This sale is now one of the most expensive property sales in the county history. An increase of COVID-19 cases has put Cornell University into a yellow alert level. This is after 74 positive cases were seen across the student body last week. This means that there is a low to moderate risk for increased transmission. The last time Cornell was raised to a yellow alert was at the beginning of February through a variety of student clusters. Community Arts Partnership announced its grant winners for 2021. The partnership distributed more than $60,000 over 30 local community organizations. Along the recipients included Caligo Vocal Ensemble, Outdoor Spring Concert, Candace Edwards Audio Art Project centering on local Black queer voices, and Greater Ithaca Activity Center, Art Education, and Art Instruction. The Tompkins County Sheriff's Office is investigating a dozen motor vehicle threats dating back to December 2020. This spawns across multiple towns including Ithaca, Groton, Dryden, and Lansing. According to officers, they are unsure of the nature of the crimes since they are usually on foot and can move out of sight at any time. The Sheriff's Office has put out unmanned patrols, giving them overtime compensation. Groton Police Department responded to a house call on late Wednesday after receiving information about a possible stabbing. Upon arrival, Groton PD found one victim suffering from a stab wound to her leg. The suspect was still at the scene when the police arrived and was taken into custody without an incident. He was charged with the third degree criminal possession of a weapon, second degree assault, second degree menacing, second degree reckless endangerment, endangering the welfare of a child, and second degree criminal contempt. For Clayton Davis, I'm Celine Scott, WICB News.
Governor Andrew Cuomo has gone from a pandemic star to now having to defend himself in the face of multiple controversies, from the nursing home handling scandals to now multiple sexual harassment allegations, overall opinion has been divided and soured in the latter stages of the pandemic. WICB correspondent Jordan Broking took a look at what local politicians' thoughts on the scandals have been and what they think the next steps should be. Following the mounting allegations of sexual misconduct against New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, Tompkins County representatives and legislators are beginning to voice their opinions. Newly elected State Assemblywoman Anna Kellis recently called on the governor to resign, joining a large number of state politicians in doing so. Initially, Kellis said to wait for the Attorney General's independent investigation to conclude before deciding whether Cuomo should resign or not. This changed following a sixth accuser stepping forward. Kellis, in addition to 58 other elected officials, signed a letter that not just referenced the governor's sexual misconduct allegations, but also the brewing nursing home scandal. The letter reads that the governor needs to put the people first, and that the lieutenant governor can do so. WICB reached out to Lieutenant Governor Kathy Holkel for comment. State Senator Tom O'Mara has also released a series of tweets calling on Cuomo to resign. One of his most recent posts compared the governor to former President Trump, who also faced sexual harassment accusations. In the tweet, O'Mara wrote, I've said for years, two sides to the same coin, Trump and Cuomo, sad as that is from either perspective, end quote. O'Mara also advanced a motion in the Senate to issue subpoenas for the nursing home scandal. Representative Tom Reed, who is also facing his own sexual misconduct allegations, said that Cuomo must be held accountable to ensure that justice is served. U.S. Senators Chuck Schumer and Kirsten Gillibrand are also calling on the governor to resign. This differs from President Biden and U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, both saying that the investigation should be performed before seeing if the governor should step down. All of this comes amid a Quinnipiac University poll released last Thursday, showing that about half of New York voters do not think Cuomo should step down. The poll also reported that one in five New Yorkers agree with the politicians' calls for his resignation. Cuomo's approval ratings have also hit the lowest they have ever been since he became governor. But about 50% of New York voters approved of the governor's handling of the pandemic. We will keep you updated on the story. For WICB News, I'm Jordan Broking. This is Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Michael Memes. Ithaca College is set to make a lot of changes in the near future, and many have been vocal about one change in particular. The school has had to cut 116 full-time equivalent faculty positions from its roster, affecting many who have come to call the Ithaca community their home. Correspondents Hamadri Saith and Madeline Lorene reached out to some of those professors who very soon will have to find other work to get their thoughts on the restructuring of the school and their positions. On a campus quieted by a portion of the student body being remote and social distancing mandates, a sound heard all too often now is that of protest against the large number of faculty cuts being made by the college to meet what they call their strategic plan. I'm Hamadri Sait. And I'm Madeline Lorene. And today, we will be hearing from some of the professors directly affected by this decision. This will be the first of a three-part series in which we will discuss the issue from the perspectives of different stakeholders within the Ithaca College community, faculty, students, alumni, and administration. 
Ithaca College is involved in the ongoing process of downsizing the school in an attempt to, quote, align the size of the faculty in right proportion to the size of the student body and our academic programs in right proportion to the student interest and need, end quote. In the words of David Maley, Director of Public Relations at Ithaca College's Office of College Communications, Maley responded to us when we contacted the president and provost for an interview and said in his email that the president and provost believe that the announcement they made on February 24th suffices for the comments on this topic, and included links to a lot of the information the college has provided us in regards to faculty cuts. But more on that later. Today we bring our focus first to those whose livelihoods are being directly affected, faculty who have been at the college for years and have made contributions to the lives of the students at Ithaca College and the college itself, a place many had started to call home. My journey here started in 2005. Um, I moved here with my husband and our baby daughter, who was 10 months old at the time, in the middle of the winter. Um, and we were adventurous. Um, we were trying to make a new start on the East Coast and um, with his performing career and me um, doing a very backdoor entree into a teaching career at IC. That's Catherine Caldwell, Associate Professor of Psychology at Ithaca College. So I taught part-time um, for the first two years with my, uh, one of, and one of my primary goals there was to also be at home a lot with my daughter. Um, and th so that led to, after two years, um, I was offered a one-year appointment and then another and another and so forth. So I gradually um, became more of a stable person at IC one year at a time. And that led to, I think the next step might've been a two-year contract and eventually a five-year contract. And so I just last year um, was renewed with a five-year contract, my second five-year contract. So I, I had every hope that I would be able to work through those five years and see what happened after that. Catherine did not get to complete her final five-year contract at IC. It was broken before the five years ended. I asked her if she knew when she signed the contract that it was possible for it to be broken. So the dean clarified that it's not a contract, so I call it that, but the dean clarified in our meeting that it's not a contract, it's a, I keep having, losing track of this word, there's another word for it that's less contractual. And it's so it's, it's breakable. It's not a legally binding agreement, basically. With, and it says very clearly in the contract and always has that being um, coming back year to year is based on enrollment. There's definitely a clause in there that says, you know, enrollment, you know, contingent upon enrollment. So, um, you know, with the downturn of enrollment, that was exacerbated by COVID, you know, I started to see some of the writing on the wall as early as last summer. I started to imagine that my job was becoming more vulnerable. Catherine knew that breaking the so-called contract was a possibility, but this news was a surprise to another professor I spoke with who was in a similar agreement with the school, who did not wish to be named. She feared for her job last fall when she was first told that it was possible that she would not be returning to the college in spring despite her one-year contract. She said, Until that conversation in the fall, I didn't know it was a possibility. 
I thought if I signed a contract, I'm secure. So to think that even signing a contract, and mind you, I was going to start looking for other work. And I was concerned about taking the one-year contract because if I said, well, what if I try to find another job? I don't want to break the contract. And I was told through the grapevine, don't worry about it. They break contracts all the time, which was news to me. So that was disappointing. She eventually ended up being called back for spring, but it came at a cost. She expressed that for many months, every time she would see her department chair's phone number in her phone, she would get nervous because she knew it was bad news. And when she finally found out that she would be returning for spring, she was told that her course load would be reduced, essentially reducing her income. After that, she finally received the news about a month ago that her contract won't be renewed another year and that she will have to go. She did, however, make it a point to emphasize how supportive her fellow staff members and her department chair had been through the journey. She said that there was an aspect of camaraderie among the faculty themselves that often missed the public eye in conversations about the issue, saying that she personally knew two professors, one at IC and one at Cornell, who accepted severance packages and decided to retire early so that other professors could keep working. Another example of faculty solidarity amid this upheaval, Sandra Steingraber, Distinguished scholar in residence in the Department of Environmental Studies and Sciences at Ithaca College, she made the decision to voluntarily leave Ithaca College after learning about the layoffs of her fellow staff members. So I've been at Ithaca College for 18 years as a scholar in residence, and I, I guess the first thing I want to say is how grateful I am to Ithaca College because these 18 years have really been the highlight of my academic life. I'm um someone who never really decided what to do when I grew up because I have a PhD in biology and a master's degree in poetry. So I don't really fit very well into any one academic department. A previous provost uh, in 2003 brought me here to Ithaca College with the idea being that I could show all my colors and um, work interdisciplinarily across the curriculum here. And it was at a time in Ithaca College's history when um, there was a real push to making Ithaca College be a transformational university, um, an institution of higher education for sustainability, which is where my work is really located. Uh, um, so it was a really good fit for me, uh, but now it's not anymore. <laughs> she said that's actually because of the austerity measures, which, according to her, have had devastating effects on the work she planned to do here. I have been working on launching for Ithaca College a Center for Climate Justice and working with my um, fellow faculty members in, in, to envision what that place would be like, how we could operationalize it, what role it could serve on campus and getting lots of input. And then on that basis, um, you know, taking my proposal to a funder. And um, the good news is that I got that grant. Um, but in the meantime, um, most of the faculty that helped me develop it and would work with me in launching it have lost their jobs under the APP process. Uh, and, and that includes the two co-chairs of the climate action group itself. Um, and so the sort of intellectual capacity that I was depending on um, to run the center is um, being devastated. Beyond losing the intellectual capital that would have helped her bring the Center for Climate Justice to reality, Steingraber also believes that the Center for Climate Justice at its core stands for justice, something she does not see happening at IC. 
the Climate Justice Center really centers the idea of justice, the idea that when our physical climate is destabilized, some people are hurt first and worst and more than others. Um, young people, uh, people of color, um, people in the global south and so on. And so um, to, to begin a, um, a big initiative that centers justice, at an institution where I feel all around me signs of workplace injustice just became such a moral dilemma for me that I um, I just needed to step away and move my work somewhere else and and then be um, use whatever power I have as a scientist in the public interest to show solidarity for my brothers and sisters here at Ithaca College who are losing their jobs in the time of, of a pandemic. So for, some, for many of my colleagues, this will be a career ending decision. Um, and I, it's one that I just disagree with strongly. I feel it's unjust. And I feel that um, as much as the fiscal crisis we have here at Ithaca College is real, there are many other ways to address it that doesn't depend on so the sort of corporate model of treating people, people who have families and children and mortgages and student loans and aspirations to treat them just like disposable parts um, that are replaceable. And when you need to you know, make profits for your investors, you just toss away those disposable human parts. I mean, there, many of us became professors precisely to critique that model of the human condition. And so the corporatization that um, this budget and this process represents is something I just feel strongly that to, I need to stand up and speak out against. The faculty cuts have led to many emotional and vocal reactions from faculty, students, and alumni. So far, the brunt of the backlash has been towards President Collado and Provost Cornish. Christine Thompson, Communication Studies Lecturer at Ithaca College, who is also being laid off after the semester, says that it's possible that in doing that, protesters may be ignoring the other faces and causes behind this decision. The report from the latest faculty council meeting was published in the Ithacan, and someone from that meeting talked about how we are we're very critical of Provost Cornish and President Collado in this process, but we have not at all critiqued the members of the committee who actually drafted all of these recommendations and plans, like their names are not in that conversation. Um, and, and for whatever reason, I don't know why we're not considering to critique those individuals as harshly considering their committee work. I asked Thompson, who is a woman of color, if she thinks that some of the harshness of these criticisms might be rooted in the racist or sexist biases people may subconsciously hold. 100%. I mean, I, I cannot give any specific examples, but you cannot have two women of color in a leadership position <laughs> existing in society and that not be a part of the impact of what they are experiencing. Like it just is, right? There's no way to ignore that. Um, and whether everybody is able to individually or large scalely recognize that because of how institutionalized and systemic this level of racism and misogyny is, now that's a different conversation, right? I don't think people are able to. The professor who did not wish to be named, also a woman of color, said that she wants other women of color to succeed and do well. 
She feels that the event last year when there was inappropriate graffiti targeted at the president was wrong and that people should not be criticized in a manner that targets who they are rather than what they do. But apart from that, she still believes that criticisms of the administration are valid and that in the last three years since the new administration has been here, she has seen admission rates and, in her opinion, the general level of the college fall. Thompson, however, highlighted that there were certain problems that already existed in the college that the president inherited when she started here, and that maybe in our attempts to support our professors, we're forgetting to remember that the president and provost are people too. So they're probably being attacked every day as they are going through this thing. And just imagine the immense pressure of that on, on their end, right? Like there's this huge call for humanity in this process and for, you know, recognizing the people who are being impacted on the other side of it. And I just think that we forget too that like the provost and the president are also human. And that doesn't by any means mean that they are above critique and that we shouldn't be asking questions and that we shouldn't be, you know, wanting more transparency and to be included. I'm not saying that at all, but I think we forget too that they are also humans and they are also going through this in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, all of the, how hard this must be for them as well, right? Thompson further emphasized that while she wished there had been more transparency and inclusion on the part of the administration, there's a big piece of the story that has often been missed in our discussions about the academic program prioritization process. There's a lot of conversation about who's being lost at the faculty level based on these cuts. And as the provost has emphasized very clearly, we're following the faculty handbook and the faculty handbook privileges certain people over others. If we want that to look different, then faculty council are the people who need to look at how are our policies and structures continuing to, to marginalize our faculty if they don't have tenure, right? Like, and a lot of our faculty don't have tenure. Um, so I think, I think there's a lot of conversations that need to be happening that aren't happening because we are so focused at what's happening at the top and not thinking about how choices that we have made on other levels could also be a part of the problem that we are now trying to fix. Catherine focused on that and thought it raised some important questions. I remember a um, all-faculty meeting with the provost back in the fall where she used those words. She said, you know, the cuts are going to be made according to the faculty handbook. It's all laid out there. There's what I call a pecking order, you know, the lowest on the totem pulling up. And I saw where I fit and I thought, wow, she's right, you know? And so it's almost like, you know, the, the administration has taken, of course, the load of the heat, right, for their decisions. And the provost has pushed back and has said, well, we are having to make tough decisions, but your faculty handbook tells us how to make them. And if you want to change that, that's the, that's the power and the duty of the faculty. And I think that there is not a very strong will amongst the faculty to change that because it starts to put into question the whole notion of tenure, you know, and that, you know, tenure is this sacred thing, you know, so how do you, what's the value of tenure if you can't distinguish yourself having tenure from those faculty around you who don't, you know, and tenure means security and not having tenure means insecurity. So I think it's a very interesting question. Um, personally, on the self-preservation side of things, I would have loved to have seen the faculty 
back in the fall, hear the provost's words and take action and say, we've got to revise this faculty manual so that we can preserve the jobs of our beloved faculty who've been around 15 and 20 years or whatever, and they deserve to be here too. But that is not what happened. And I don't anticipate that it, that's going to change anytime soon, although I, I won't be around to see what happens next. The way colleges are funded is at the root of the problem we are facing today in Ithaca and as a general trend, according to Steingraber, who says, The more that the federal and state government has chosen to absent itself from the public funding of colleges and universities, which is a, a kind of a public good that they used to be very proud of. You know, our colleges and universities, something that we donated tax dollars for. But as the government has pulled out of that, and that's been going on, I would say, ever since the Kent State Massacre in 1970, right? Um, then private money has moved to fill that gap and, and that has incentivized um, colleges to place on their board of trustees or board of directors, however they're organized, um, kind of the, the captains of industry, the CEOs that have access to big, capital. And so I think some of the thinking are, um, that is this kind of disaster capitalist thinking um, that is creating things on college campuses is coming from that direction. Um, but there are these downstream effects. So when you, when you act as though um, there's a small finite pot of money and you're actually going to shrink the college by taking, you know, by uh, announcing a target number of students, then you're actually lowering revenue streams. You're not going to make more money by shrinking the college. And then now there's really is fewer dollars for the professors who are there. And the APP process really pits us against each other, um, makes us vie for the smaller, smaller amount of money that remains by making the case for the value of what we do. And, you know, how can you hold up the value of like my department, which is an amazing, wonderful department, environmental studies and sciences, um, the, the value of the, uh, of what we're doing, uh, sort of educating the next generation on all aspects of physical environment and um, how to how to respond to it. How can you hold that up against you know um, a mathematics degree or a music or a music degree or philosophy or journalism or you know I, I mean it um, all these things are important and necessary and some of those attract more majors than others. But is value really and sort of purely quantity. I mean, I just think this is a very reductionist way of thinking about the role of higher education. She talked about her expectations for a different vision after what she called many problematic years at the college, starting from some years before the current administration took hold. Uh, we've all been kind of holding our breath through these kind of dark years, hoping for an administration that could once again return us to the kind of a, a, an expansive vision and move forward. So uh, my critique is that instead we have an administration that wants to contract and make us smaller and retrench and seems to have um, um, a look down vision rather than um, look out. 
And I understand that um, an institution can't always be transformational and expansive in a time of real economic emergency, but um, I feel like we've lost our way. Catherine also said there are some things she wishes the college would have done differently. Let's not even go there and talk about the value of faculty and staff and colleagues and and how to treat them humanely and how to make transition plans for them humanely. So if, if, if it is like, okay, Catherine, we see the writing on the wall, we're going to have to do something here. But I, I don't think it was a very humane process, you know, that really considered the the impacts on my future career and the and the time that I put in for the college. Um, so there's there's so much more I would say about that. And I guess on that, I would say one last one thing in particular. Um, I have a I, I wrote a little piece to, for myself last night, and the title is "Congratulations, you're fired." <laughs> and so that came out of the observation um, from a colleague of mine who said, hey, I saw your name on the list of faculty who got promoted last year and who are being celebrated at a faculty reception next month with the dean. And I said, yeah, that's true. They're celebrating me because I got promoted last May. I did not get tenure, but I got promoted. And so I'm on that, that celebration. She said, so you're simultaneously being celebrated and fired? And I said, yes, that's exactly what's happening. At the end of our conversations, I asked all of the professors if they were worried about their future. And every single one was a bittersweet response. I wouldn't say that anyone was particularly happy about it, of course, but everyone made sure to talk about the professors they think had it worse than them first. And I thought there was something beautiful about that. The fact remains though, that we are in the middle of a pandemic and they, like many others in the country have been, are all being let go in a time when the economy is in no place to support educators and when finding another job will be much harder, something that has even higher stakes for professors having to provide for their families and children. Look out for the next episode in the series next Sunday, when we talk to students and alumni involved in the fight against austerity measures. Until then, we ask you to send us any questions you may have on the issue at news at wicb.org. And we will try to find the answers to your questions. For WICB News, I'm Madeline Lorene. And I'm Hamadri Seat. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Ithaca Now on WICB. Have you ever been at the dinner table when a friend or family member begins a political debate? Have you ever wanted to join in but just didn't know how? Now there's a podcast that can help you navigate the complex world of politics. Join me, Alyssa Spady, on VIC's newest podcast, Policy Unplugged, as I set out to help you navigate different policies going through Capitol Hill. Tune in each week for a new topic so that you can debate politics with facts and not fiction. To hear our daily newscast anywhere, anytime, head on over to your favorite podcast app and search WICB Presents The Latest for a quick rundown of the day's news locally and beyond. Subscribe for a new update every weekday at 6 a.m. And while you're there, check out WICB's entire network of podcasts.
Mental health is something most people have had struggles with over the past year, from medical and essential workers having to care and work for people in stressful environments, to many not being able to see family and friends, and for many, periods of grief, the pandemic has taken a toll on pretty much everyone. To learn more about how exactly it's affecting people and how you can start addressing it, correspondent Lauren Leone heard from local health experts. It's now spring 2021, a season associated with renewed energy, growth, and longer days. But it can be difficult to make sense of the ways in which time has essentially stood still between spring 2020 and now, a year of the pandemic compounded by economic collapse, social and racial unrest, polarizing elections, and more, has disrupted our lives and taken a toll on our wellness. These crises have depleted our capacity to mentally, physically, and emotionally cope with ongoing long-term emergencies. In the context of the COVID pandemic, um, there are a lot of differences uh, compared to other disasters or you know difficult times that people have been through because the scale is huge. Patricia Watson, psychologist for the National Center for PTSD and professor at the Dartmouth School of Medicine. She's speaking at a Stress First Aid event hosted last month by the Ithaca College Gerontology Institute. There's this sense of uncertainty, worries and fears that our people are having of things they've never you know, experienced before. There's a lot of strangeness and unfamiliarity. She says the past year has been a process of wayfinding or navigating challenging situations to achieve a sense of security. Our minds are going to go back and forth. And um, some days we feel that things are going to be fine. Other things you're going to swing in another direction and be frustrated. And the process can be very, very taxing when you're dealing with this kind of long-term big uncertainty. Melody Kolmitz, a paramedic and professor in the Ithaca College Physician Assistant Program, spoke February 25th at a mindfulness event about how microtraumas can be harmful to our brains, too. It doesn't have to be one big, giant, traumatic experience. Sometimes it's a bunch of cumulative small ones that add up over time. Our usual self-care strategies may not be enough, particularly for frontline workers and healthcare professionals. Colmitz says that in her emergency services work, she regularly engages with both patients and fellow colleagues who experience physical, emotional, and mental trauma. Even as practitioners, uh, we have utilized many of these resources throughout the past year, uh, dealing with uh, the pandemic and things that are going on in our work lives and our personal lives. Periods of uncertainty have strained our abilities to adapt to changing circumstances and break down trauma into pieces that are manageable enough to work through. Watson says... This is especially true of those who accumulate stress daily without sufficient rest and recovery. What I'm seeing at this point in the pandemic is a lot of wear and tear and fatigue injury. And in settings like this, with people who've been in jobs like this for many years in particular, there's often this feeling of, yeah, yeah, just keep going, just keep going. It's what we always do. We've done this for years, but it's different now because of the level of intensity of the amount of work and the amount of stress. Being absorbed in high-stress environments like medical and healthcare fields can be draining. This is what Ithaca College Recreation and Leisure Studies professor Matt Vossler calls compassion fatigue, 
where you can get so fatigued by the scope of what you're working with every day that can put you in a place you're no longer effective for the people you're working with. Vossler said during the college's mental health awareness in the clinic event in February that he has carved out extra time for self-care when he has experienced demanding clinical settings. You know, that's one thing we're seeing right now with medical professionals and, and the COVID environment is not having the opportunity to take care of yourself, you can't take care of others. And the struggle is real. And it's one of those things that we often don't acknowledge, but we all feel it. Krupa is Tompkins County's Public Health Director and Mental Health Commissioner. At a Let's Talk Mental Health event this month, he says how. Our staff are overwhelmed and overworked and overstressed. Um, they're, they're dealing with supporting everyone out there that has all this additional trauma and stress. Krupa says local health care agencies are providing outlets for staff members to discuss how they're feeling. They're also making efforts to determine appropriate caseloads based on residents' demands for services. We saw early on uh, in at the beginning of the, the COVID uh, pandemic that our demand was low, right? People just weren't leaving home, right? We were telling everybody to stay home unless you absolutely had to go. We were able to quickly, as were all of the, the providers in our community, to transition to telemedicine to make sure that we were able to still reach our clients. He talked about how requests for support from the county's mental health agencies and Ithaca's Family and Children's Services and Suicide Prevention and Crisis Line increased as the pandemic progressed. For a lot of folks, the inability to access their normal course of care uh, in the way that they were used to, and for those that may never have accessed the mental health system, but we're dealing with all of these new stresses, we, we saw a pretty significant uptick in, in the demand for crisis services. Though crisis levels are evening out, he says the spring season is historically a time when the local need for mental health care rises. He says the pandemic has made plain that public health includes mental health. And if we're going to address um, individuals holistically, we need to make sure that we have appropriate systems and funding in place for uh, mental health services. And taking care of your mental and physical health doesn't stop when you're on the clock. In stressful workplaces, more time and resources equate to better self-care and peer support. Everyday routines and rituals at work and home need to be adjusted to reduce fatigue injuries and cope with the normalcy that's been missing. Going back to Watson, she says it's vital to focus on all types of loss as well, that that can create an injury, not only due to death, but but loss of relationships, loss of time, loss of things or parts of oneself that have been important to you that that you're now grieving about. Maintaining well-being amid COVID-19 requires different skills and approaches. Watson went on to say that these include responding to an ever-changing context, having better communication, remaining flexible, learning from failure, and being more aware. Some have expected less from themselves and taken more time to recharge, like modifying your expectations on a daily basis and being more patient with yourself and others and trying to be kind because nobody is at their best in these circumstances. Because it took what was seemingly a lifetime of reserves to get through the first wave of the pandemic, she says, the subsequent waves have dealt blows to our health and wellness. And the reserves just aren't there right now. So very important. 
think about wear and tear and what needs to happen for, to replenish. We each have roles in learning how to recognize stress in ourselves and those we work with, according to Watson. This can look like understanding our capacity to aid others and identifying when it's time to reach out for help. She says that realizing when someone needs more than we can provide and offering information about support services are key. Experiences of hardship, feelings of burnout, and emotional ups and downs aren't abnormal or isolated. So many people, even community leaders and admired local figures, have grappled with lost opportunities, a lack of control, and problems that can't be easily solved. You know, I've worked in um, crisis-related work for the past 10 years, and it's still really hard. Ithaca College Case Management Director Rebecca Cogan carroll and she's also speaking at the Mental Health Awareness in the Clinic event. When I'm sitting in front of somebody and I see them in a place of extreme pain, panic, fear, it's exhausting. Carol says that positive human impact is a silver lining to careers in medicine that ask practitioners to constantly devote themselves to their patients, especially during COVID-19. And I, I would be worried if there was ever a time in your career where that wasn't hard. Um, I would say that's almost an indicator to check what's going on for you and your burnout because, again, we all go into these helping fields because we want to make people's lives better. Medicine was a way that I was able to really come to terms with the idea of having some discomfort, pain, struggle in what I was doing that was meaningful and worthwhile. That's Martin Stallone. He's a Cornell University graduate and CEO of Cayuga Health System which is a network consisting of Cayuga Medical Center and Schuyler Hospital. I think I can speak for all of my clinical and administrative colleagues at Cayuga. Our recent response to the COVID pandemic was pretty typically horrible to endure. And we understood at the same time that we were doing so much good by virtue of the sacrifices that we made. Like Carol, Stallone says that contributing to the health of the community can sometimes come at the expense of personal well-being. Working around the clock and on weekends for months, that's not fun. Operating and you know, having accountability and responsibility in an environment that is legitimately volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, that's not fun either. Speaking last month during Cornell's Soup and Hope speaker series, Stallone distinguished between what's meaningful to him and what makes him the happiest. He says that finding self-worth amid adversity doesn't necessarily translate to feeling comfortable and satisfied. On one hand, my positions and what I do involves deep meaning. It involves really making a difference. But frankly, it's painful at times with each of my positions requiring struggle, managing conflict, and sacrificing in various ways. Now, would I change my situation? Resoundingly, no. Because I know I'm fulfilling an important purpose. Stallone says that in the process of meeting the challenges presented by COVID-19, his Cayuga Health System team members have evolved together and reached a deeper level of understanding for one another. I'm an administrator of people who provide healthcare. I recognize that healthcare at its best is a complex human service that's rendered by a lot of different people. It's complicated to do because it requires a lot of coordination and communication, and this makes teamwork and relationships critical. Susan Salishore is a professor and director of the Ithaca College Physician Assistant Program. 
Speaking at the mindfulness event with Kolmitz, she says the pandemic has only heightened emphasis on the importance of drawing energy and strength from authentic human connection. We all need emotional support during these difficult times. I frankly, we need it all the time, but it's even more critical now. Salashore says the value of compassion cannot be overstated when discussing how overlapping pressures and health challenges have become more pronounced in communities of color amid COVID-19. And the biggest thing that is so important right now is that we are kind towards each other, that we show warmth towards each other. As a person of color, I have to tell you this is really important and critical to me for my allies to demonstrate to me. How can we make sure we be mentally well in an environment where we feel like we're under attack every day? There's reason to be optimistic that this spring season holds more promise than the last. As of March 19th, over 24,000 vaccines have been administered at Tompkins County vaccination sites, and there are no active COVID-19 hospitalizations in the county. Stallone says the pandemic has made local medical systems more resilient for future emergencies. These victories and positive impacts help him reconcile the unpleasant aspects of the current circumstances. I deeply value directing our health system's efforts in a way that the community needs. Starting up COVID testing, investing in a vaccine distribution program that's been widely acclaimed, and all of the changes we put in place in what by all accounts is a successful pandemic response, these constitute important decisions on behalf of our community that made a difference. If you're a Tompkins County resident in need, you can call the Mental Health Department at 607-274-6200, says Krupa. For those facing an immediate crisis, the local crisis line is 607-272-1616. He says it takes a community effort to overcome. The stigma that's associated with behavioral health issues. So the more that we can talk about uh, what's available and normalize that in our conversations with our family, friends, and and close circles, um, that will help us begin to, to make some inroads there. Additional mental health resources and services exist in the area, from telemental health care to education programs and therapy. At Cayuga Medical Center, Family and Children's Service, the County's Mental Health Association, and the National Alliance on Mental Illness, Finger Lakes. For WICB News, I'm Lauren Leon. Take care. And that's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past stories, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear full shows anywhere, anytime. Also subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations, Jeremy Menard, WICB Station Manager, Sam Ives, Programming Director, Lou Barron, and new Social Media Coordinator, Gabrielle Topping. Thank you.
Ithaca Now is produced by news director Jay Bradley with assistance from news managing director Celine Tutar. And this week's correspondents, Clay Davis, Jordan Broking, Madeline Lorene, Madri Seth, and Lauren Leone. All the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at WICB.org. We will be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Michael Memis, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB. 